Hey, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. By my count, I think this is our 75th episode. Got a couple of great guests this week. I am Jeff Benjamin here by myself this week because Bruce Kelly is still at home uh, perfecting his uh, famous Christmas lasagna recipe. So uh, as I said last week, if you're ever in New York, you just stop by Bruce's house and uh, he will feed you some of that lasagna. He's, He's very proud of it. Um, but uh, kicking off here, we're going to talk about some year-end tax planning ideas uh, that financial advisors can uh, maybe introduce for their clients or maybe should be thinking about. We've got with us uh, now Ed Slot, a nationally recognized IRA distribution expert, professional speaker, television personality, and best-selling author. He is known for his ability to turn advanced tax strategies into understandable, actionable, and entertaining advice. That's what we're looking for today. Uh, he has been named the best source of IRA advice by the Wall Street Journal, and USA Today wrote, it would be tough to find anyone who knows more about IRAs than CPA Scott. Slot, I'm sorry, CPA Slot. Well, he's probably pretty good too, if they yes. said that. I'm thinking, yeah, we'll, we'll get him next. Um, <laughs> Ed, is, he is the president and founder of Ed Slot and Company, a leading source of IRA expertise and analysis to financial advisors, institutions, and consumers. Ed, welcome to the program. Well, great to be back here with you, Jeff. Thanks. Yes, thank you very much. We want to talk about some year-end retirement tax planning moves in, in light of uh, some potential new laws uh, kicking in next year, 2022. I want to jump right into this. We got a lot of things we want to try and cover here. Um, last chance for backdoor Roths. Is that is that accurate? Can, can you break that down for us? Well, it's in the proposal. And like we said, any day is a different day in Congress, but you have to be aware of it. You know, normally I don't like to talk about proposals because, you know, they could change every minute. Uh, you know, I'm more over the years been in the Yogi Berra camp. You know, he, he always said, I never make predictions, especially about the future. That was a typical Yogi Berra thing. Yeah. But here, I, ha I have to tell you, advisors need to brush up on proposals. I know that sounds awful because they're not law yet, but you know why? It's getting a lot of media attention, like we're talking about it. It's in the Times. It's in the Wall Street Journal. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. So clients are calling up. I don't even really take clients anymore. I haven't in years. I do mostly the advisor training now, but I had a planning practice for about 40 years. And wouldn't you know, you know, I still get some calls from my old time clients. So when this came out, uh, this client of mine in his 90s, he says, oh, Ed, I heard, um, by the way, all my clients that are alive are in their 90s because I got them when I was in my uh, 30s and they were in their late 60s. Now I'm in my late 60s and they're either dead or in their 90s. All right. But, uh, so he called me up, Ed, I heard they're going to get back, get rid of the backdoor Roth. What do I do? I said, Jim, you don't do the backdoor Roth. You never did the backdoor Roth. You haven't had income earnings for over 20 years. Yeah, but I heard it on the news. This is the thing. People are hearing things, so you have to respond. So first, yeah, it's in the bill. It's one of the few provisions in the Build Back Better bill. Boy, that's a, a mouthful. Uh, talk about a super alliteration. The Build Back Better bill, it's in there to take effect next year. So most advisors should know by now that this affects the backdoor Roth. That's when people make too much money to contribute to a Roth. So they contribute instead to a non-deductible IRA, and then they convert that to a Roth. 
mm-hmm. which you can still do, but you can only do it if this passes. And we don't know if it does, but you want to prepare. At least you want to know what to tell clients, sound educated on the phone. Say, you know, you don't want to get on the phone with a client and they tell you this. They say, really? I never heard that. Well, you're hearing it now. So this provision is set to expire. Uh, at the end of this year, no more backdoor Roths. Congress doesn't like okay. them for some reason. Maybe it has a bad name. It sounds bad, but it also means no more backdoor Roths, the mega backdoor Roths, where people have money in a company plan. In this year, for example, you can do up to 58000 in, say, a 401k of after-tax money and convert that pretty much tax-free to mm-hmm. a Roth IRA. Both of these provisions under the proposal, and I keep saying proposal, so what you have to do when you hear me say proposal, it's not a law. I still get questions from advisors. You know what I do, Jeff? I direct them back to Schoolhouse Rock to watch Uh the video when a bill becomes a law. It's still just a bill. But this provision, the uh, elimination of the backdoor Roth, has no income. It it affects everybody regardless of income. Unlike a lot of the other provisions that if you're over 400,000 or over 450, not this one. So the only thing I would tell you is if you have clients that have been doing this, it's now or never get it done before the end of the year, just in case. Next year, if this passes, uh, this the backdoor Ross will be a thing of the past. They'll be uh, disallowed st- uh, starting next year in 2022. What is the limit now on actually having a Roth, the income limit? So for 2021, that's a good question. If you're married joint and your income exceeds 208, 208,000, and you can get these numbers anywhere, so don't worry about that. Or uh, if it exceeds 208,000 or you're single and 140,000, you can't do a Roth contribution. But there's no income limit on contributing to a traditional non-deductible IRA and then converting it. Right. If they allow now, who who benefits the most from these year-end conversions? People that have the money to do it. That's all. Especially the people on the mega backdoor Roth. You know, to put fifty-eight thousand or up to fifty-eight thousand in a company plan, you have to have the disposable income. Mm-hmm. So it's generally people that have the income that can take basically six or seven thousand for themselves or their spouse, or maybe uh, twelve or fourteen thousand this year. Take it out of one pocket and put it in a tax-free Roth. So that's going to be out if this passes next year do you have a you have a handicap a ballpark on uh what's the over under the odds on that passing the over under whatever it is is on the big bill remember it passed the house yeah that's fine but the senate is 50 50 one vote out it's out but if it does pass if the big package you know this is almost like a footnote if you've read all the articles on this plan it talks about the tax rates the child credits all these provisions and then on the bottom it says oh yeah and there's some retirement provisions they're not controversial so if the big package passes this is going to take the ride with them this is all going to sail right through it'll get on the train with the rest of the package package. It's not controversial. Nobody's arguing about it. Uh, I looked recently and I haven't seen anybody with uh, protest signs outside the Capitol saying, save the backdoor Roth. I haven't seen one. So there's not a lot of people complaining about it. Okay. Well, so if you're going to do a backdoor Roth, uh, you got a few weeks left and that's about it. 
likely. You might have you know, more. But here's the message for advisors. Do the prep work now, because what happens on a lot of these tax laws, if they get passed, they I, I would if I was a betting man, it would get passed somewhere between December 20th and December 23rd. That's where it seems where all tax laws get passed because they want to run home for the holidays. And then it's too late to do anything about them. I'll give you an example. Two years ago, in December 2019, the Secure Act passed on December 20th, enacted December 20th, effective January 1st, 11 days later. Everybody was scurrying around. So the reason I'm mentioning it now and that you're bringing it up here, you know, get the ducks in a row, get it ready to hit the button if you want to do it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they would pass a law on the 23rd of December that takes effect on January 1st in something like this? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Absolutely. They want to run home for the holidays. Like yeah. I told you, you know, look at all the, look at the tax cuts and jobs that all of these things come out in late December. Well, I know, but what I'm saying is maybe they would make this take, take effect on like April 15th or something like that. They'd have to change the law. In okay. the law, it says this is out. The effective date is January 1st, 22 uh, for this okay. provision. So basically, if you're thinking about it at all, get ready to do it or just do it. Because if you do a backdoor Roth this year, there's in the it's still legal. Oh, yeah. You know, you bring up a good point, Jeff. Uh, for years, people said, is this really legal? Well, indirectly, Congress, first of all, both Congress and IRS has said it's legal. But mm -hmm. by, by putting this into law indirectly, isn't Congress really saying it's legal? Because if it wasn't legal, they wouldn't have to outlaw it. Okay, Ed, I want to ask you now about how to use Roth conversions to lower Medicare IRMA charges and the taxes on Social Security benefits. Well, uh, the taxes on Social Security benefits, you can't do a lot about because there's such low income levels. But the uh, so it hits almost everybody that has even a decent amount of income, 30, 40,000 or so. But the IRMA charges, those are the income related monthly adjustment amounts. You have to make that clear to clients, especially the ones that are affected are older clients who, who still know people named IRMA. Now, there has been no baby that I know of been born in the last you know, 100 years named Irma or Gladys or Mildred for that. You know, my grandmother was Ida. She had friends named Irma. But other than that, we're talking about the income-related monthly adjustment amounts. And the, the, the devious part here is it kicks in these surcharges for parts B and D kick in at certain income levels. And on each of those income levels, it's like a cliff. So $1 over the limit could really throw things out of whack. Here's a great tip for Roth conversions. If you have a client uh, that is thinking about doing a Roth conversion, have them do it at age 62 or earlier. Now you might say, but the IRMA charges, Medicare doesn't kick in till 65. Medicare, it's tricky because it has a two year look back period. So if you do a conversion this year at age 63, thinking, oh, I'm gonna escape those IRMA charges. Cause remember Roth IRA conversion income increases income. And once you're on, the Med on Medicare, yes, it can trigger those surcharges. Mm -hmm. But if you convert at 63, that income would trigger for this age 65. You know, I've had clients that tell me, uh, but e even uh, clients in consumers and programs, sometimes uh, when I talk about Roth conversions, they say, well, I don't want to do Roth conversions because it will increase my Medicare premiums, the surcharges, the IRMA charges, and that would make me very angry.
So you know what I tell them? Well, if that's going to make you angry, then convert anyway, because mm -hmm. I'd rather have you be angry one year than be angry for the rest of your life. Because if you don't convert, it's not like the problem goes away. The IRA just continues to grow and snowball and compound. And at some point at age 72 now, you're going to be forced to take money out. And those larger RMDs will probably trigger the very charges that are bothering you. So maybe the best plan is moderation. Start doing a series of smaller annual conversions over time. It's a good way to do, sort of dollar cost average into the market with Roth conversions and spread out the tax over many years. But the good information, if you have a client that's age 62 or earlier, that's a prime candidate for conversion and avoiding the Medicare surcharge or partially. Remember, you don't have to do all of it. It's not an mm -hmm. all or nothing. Yeah, that's good advice. And also, uh, I know a, that's good advice. That's why you have me on here. <laughs> well, I was going to say on a side note, I'm going to name my next child Irma. All right. Just to show me up. Just, yeah, just to whether, prove me wrong. I don't care if it's a boy or a girl. Oh, it's boy, gonna you're going to have problems. Yeah. That's like that Johnny Cash song, <laughs> a boy named Sue. Yeah, well, we'll see. Um, all right. I want to talk about uh, give us a little estate planning update uh, with a life insurance review in light of the SECURE Act. Well, uh, the SECURE Act changed everything estate planning wise for those with IRAs, 401ks or any retirement accounts. You know, people uh, had made their plans for, for passing on IRAs, 401ks, retirement accounts, let's just call them all IRAs, it's all of them, to beneficiaries who used to be able to do what we used to call the stretch IRA, to defer the tax out over their lifetimes, 20, 30, 50, even 80 years for a baby grandchild. Mm -hmm. That's all gone with the SECURE Act now. Most of these non-spouse beneficiaries will have to take all the funds down within 10 years after death a bunching all that income into that short time period. And that might be a period where, they, where the beneficiaries who might be in their 50s or 60s might be in their own highest earnings year. So a lot could be lost to future taxes. So that's the law we have now. Many people with large IRAs, a lot of your best clients for the advisors listening here, a lot of your best clients, the ones with multi-million dollar IRAs, a lot of them have named trusts as their IRA beneficiaries to get the benefit of not only only the stretch IRA, but the protection. Remember, when you have a few million in an IRA, I know with clients of mine, they were always worried. They wanted the kids to have it and even the grandkids, but they didn't mm -hmm. want them squandering it or blowing it. So they would name a trust. You should identify every client that has named a trust as their beneficiary to see if that plan is still good. It probably won't work anymore after the SECURE Act. Uh, you may have to update the trust or look to alternative planning solutions like Roth IRAs or life insurance, which bring tax-free income into the trust. I'm not going to say that's a good idea because I think you know it is, all right? Um, <laughs> re required minimum distributions are back. Uh, how do you prepare for that tax bill? Well, that you, uh, the word required sort of gives it away that there's no choice, just a mm -hmm. little tip off. 
Uh, so you have to take that. But most people are caught off guard with this because, again, you know, with us, it's like inside baseball. We talk about it all the time. But we still hear questions from consumers. Do we still have to take RMDs? I think advisors better check on this. That Everybody got a pass last year with the CARES Act and the waiver of RMDs. But like you said, they're back this year. And they're larger for two reasons. Number one, there were no RMDs last year. So more money was earning last year and the market mm -hmm. was up last year like it is this year. And the RMD is based on the year end balance from last year. So their RMDs may be larger than they really had planned on. So make sure that uh, maybe working with the tax advisor that not only they take the RMD, but they're prepared, they have enough estimated taxes paid in. A great tip would be if you feel that the client's going to get caught short and now you have a good idea of their income. Remember we're in December, most of the uh, mutual funds have thrown off their capital gains. Most of the income could be predicted now for 2021. It's a good time to see what bracket they might be in, in uh, their uh, marginal tax rate and estimate what the tax cost might be on that RMD. And a good idea if they're short with estimated taxes is to take withholding right from the RMD. Because if you take withholding tax out of it, that withholding is deemed evenly paid throughout the year and it can, and it can avoid an underpayment of estimated tax penalty. So you can still fix that before year end. I would work with the uh, tax preparer on that one. All right. Uh, that's about all I had for you, Ed, but I'd, I'd like to know, is there anything, uh, any kind of pro tip you can leave us with or something you can watch out for? Are you kidding? <laughs> we do two day programs for advisors. Do I have tips? Are you kidding me? Yeah, we've had lots of stuff. In fact, I'll tip you off right now. There's a brand new investment news column I have out now called five ways to add client value to your relationships with year-end planning. And this is what gave me the idea. I mean, I've been talking about this for probably over 20, maybe 30 years. You have to show value. You know, there's lots of pressure on advisor fees. And this story came out. I mean, it's not the only one, but I'm looking at a story from November 15th in the Wall Street Journal that a lot of your best clients have seen. It was almost a full, it is a full page story. And the Wall Street Journal, November 15th, and the title says the problem with how many financial advisors set their fees. And they lay out these two questions. They tell people who use advisors to ask your advisor, why exactly am I paying the fees I'm paying? And can you quantify, quantify the value of your service? Mm -hmm. Well, what are you going to answer? So I started my article with exactly that question, and I gave everybody five ways to show value beyond investment activities, because even though that may be important, and it is important, in the clients' minds, based on all the media out there and everybody doing everything for free, right? Everybody thinks it's valueless. It's been marginalized. It's been commoditized. So they don't see a big value in that. You have to show them where you provide value. So I gave five areas in this article, and hopefully you can link to that. One of them we covered already. The first one I said, have the conversation about recent tax proposals. It shows them you're on the case, that you're looking out for them, that you're up on things. You take education. You know what to do. You have planning ideas. To me, that's enhanced value. Mm -hmm. Avoiding mistakes. I mean, avoiding mistakes is a killer. I, I mean, yeah, I just had this case. I, I'm telling you, uh, 
not just, I had it last year, but it's still in my head. An attorney, uh, recently, an attorney called me up. And normally when an attorney calls me up, it's really bad already. And she said, I have this case where a $3 million IRA went to the wrong beneficiary because the, nobody checked the beneficiary form. And she started filling me in on these details. And I said, wait a minute, I know this case. I teach this case at our advisor training programs. That's you? You're the attorney on that? He said, yep, that's me. What happened is the financial advisor moved from his old firm to a new firm, which happens. You see that all the time. And when they moved the IRA over to the new financial institution, nobody updated the beneficiary form. Nobody checked it. Nobody ever even looked at it. Well, now the guy has died and everybody's looking at it. Now it's a major lawsuit. And she asked me, can you serve as expert witness on this case? And I said, well, on whose side? She said, well, we're representing the financial advisor. Our defense will be that it's not his job to check beneficiary forms. I said, I can't do that. That is part of his job. That's where an advisor shows his value. For over 30 years, I've been saying, check beneficiary forms, check beneficiary forms on every program, every show, every interview, every article. It's in every one of my books. And now you want me to get up on the witness stand under oath and say, eh, it's not that important. No, that is important. So that's a valuable service you can do. I think that's one of the highest value services you can provide. You know why? Because everybody understands it. Tell the clients, I want to check beneficiary forms on all your IRAs, 401ks, annuities, life insurance. Even if you don't have those assets under management, you start doing work like this, you will have all of those assets under management. Because when you check beneficiary forms, what you're really doing is asking about the family. And that's mm -hmm. good business in any business. That's how you build relationships. And the stronger your relationship, the stronger your value will be. Then nobody will ask about fees. It won't even come up. You know the old saying, people only talk about price in the absence of value. And I would tell them to follow up on recent transactions, on rollovers, on Roth conversions. Did the money get to the right place? We just had a situation, a case came up, uh, I think earlier this week, I think on Monday, a Tuesday, uh, earlier this week, where an advisor uh, moved again. You gotta, you gotta watch what's going on. Move the client's Roth 401k from a company plan. The idea was to roll it over to Roth IRA. But Again, there was a mistake. Somehow it went to their traditional IRA, which you can't even do under the tax law. The advisor said, ah, leave it there. No big deal. You can't leave it there. What do you mm -hmm. want them to pay tax twice on the money? And, and it's against the law. So, I mean, follow up on transactions before the year ends. This is so critical. You know, tax planning is kind of like cement. You know, once the year ends, it dries and it hardens and it's much harder to fix problems. Right now you can fix problems before they're etched in stone, so to speak, solidified with 1099 reporting once the year closes. So follow up on rollover transactions, on Roth conversions, on 60 day rollovers, even 72 T payments, any transactions, show them you're providing value by looking after their money. So these are some of the tips I give mm -hmm. in this article. Another tip, might be to look at clients that can still do QCDs, qualified charitable distributions. 
they, these don't apply to everybody, but if you have a client that gives to charity that qualifies, they're probably not getting any tax benefit out of the funds they're giving because most people take a standard deduction. If they qualify for a QCD, you can transfer right from your IRA to a charity and have it excluded from income. This is a great tax benefit. The only downside is that it's not available to enough people. It's only available, the QCD I'm talking about, to IRA owners and IRA beneficiaries who are 70 and a half years old or older. Mm -hmm. You have to be 70 and a half. If you turn 70 and a half tomorrow, you don't qualify today. Even though the RMD age was raised to 72 by the SECURE Act, uh, this age stayed at 70 and a half. So see which clients, uh, clients that give to charity anyway. I'm not saying give more to charity to get a tax break. If I was saying that, I'd say give all your money away, then you'll never have any taxes. I'm just saying the giving they're already doing, redirect it this way if they qualify. Plus next year, and this is in that article too, it may be one of the most valuable articles you read all year. I'm not just hyping this. I think it's one of the best pieces and it'll be out exclusively on investment news uh, very soon. Maybe out already by the time you hear this on mega QCDs. Every one of these items during the year, I've had articles on in investment news. Start looking at those articles and providing real value so you can answer those questions asked in the Wall Street Journal. In fact, if you start doing these, these planning activities that I'm talking about and providing the values, the questions will never come up. Nobody will look to say, what is my advisor? What am I paying my advisor when they see all the value they're constantly getting? All right, Ed. Hey, really good stuff. Um, uh, you delivered just as, uh, as we expected. Um, Financial Advisor's got a lot of good information there for free from Ed Slot. Um, go check those beneficiary forms right now. Ed, want to thank you. All right. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll be talking to you again. All right. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Okay, folks. Uh, now we're going to transition from year-end tax management to this uh, booming RIA M&A activity. The uh, financial advisory business is consolidating like nobody's business. Well, like maybe David DeVoe's business. Uh, <laughs> David DeVoe is chief executive officer of DeVoe and Company. He's here to talk to us about what's going on in uh, mergers and acquisitions among advisory firms. Uh, a, a milestone was recently hit. Uh, David, why don't you tell us about that, what your latest uh, counting shows us? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Um, so, yeah, we hit the double century mark um, mm -hmm. to try to make it sound a little cooler. Um, uh, last week, we, we saw 200 transactions that have been executed year to date, which uh, uh, puts us well, well beyond uh, 2021 being the eighth successive record year of M&A activity. So it, it mm -hmm. continues to be a hot market indeed. Well beyond uh, 2020. What was 2020? Give us some context here. How far beyond are we? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, in 2020, we saw 159 transactions. And, you know, this is Devoe and Co. data. We report on it every quarter. Um, I've been tracking this for 18 years now. And just to, to be clear and a little nerdy, um, this is a last year was 159 transactions of RAA, SEC registered RAAs that you and I talk about every day with 100 million 
or more in assets under management. And the reason we do that too is just, you know, there, there's 10,000 plus firms in the industry. There's about 7,000 under a hundred million. And we're gonna know every deal above that. But once you go below mm -hmm. it, the data just starts to get a little spotty. So yeah, you can imagine, we've just really started to see some spikes in activities. You know, if you go back to 2015, 2016, we were like 70 or 80 deals, 2017, 90. Uh, 2018, uh, 101. So we're gonna we're gonna double what we saw a couple of years ago, and then it's just been these huge gazelle strides from 100 to 131, from 131 to 159 last year, and now you know breaking through 200. So yeah. we've seen a steep acceleration. I want to ask you because a lot of or not a lot, but a, a few other companies uh, also track uh, this consolidation in the advisory space. I want to know, what, tell us how you count a deal. Does it have to be announced? Does it have to be completed? Um, what, at what point in the process do you count that deal? Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple couple other firms similar to ours, one or two that are tracking it. And, you know, uh, some of them do like hybrid and get into international. And, and you know, we, we look at their data and we're like, man, it's curious they included that. I mean, we're just nerds about it. Um, so um, specifically, because I know we chatted about this a week or two ago, um, you know, there, there's really three items where you can quote unquote track a deal. It's signing the deal, right? You sign on the dotted line. Mm -hmm. um, and then that doesn't mean the deal is done. It's, it's once you close it and you, you typically in that, you know, um, purchase agreement have certain elements like, hey, you're going to have, you know, 90% of your, cl your clients sign on the dotted line or whatever else. There's certain qualifications to say it's technically closed. So there's the signing there's the close and then there's the announcement. Um, right. So what we do, we track all the deals based on the announcement. And that's because these are privately held firms in most cases. In some cases, but not all, we know the, um, the, the signing. In other cases, but not all, we know the close. And good news, we're the most active investment banker for you know firms with 300 million to several billion. So we know a number of these, but we don't always know those elements. So we know for a fact anytime they're announced. So that's okay. that's the date that we use every time. I got you. Yeah. Um, all right, we we've got the we've got the context of the. I mean, 200 deals compared, and it's not even the end of the year yet compared to 159 last year, and obviously going backwards from there. What are the drivers? Are there any unique drivers this year? Yeah, yeah. I think um, so. If we take a step back, this industry is going through a natural period of consolidation in some ways, right? You know, so it's a big industry, 10,000 plus firms to use a round number. And there's consolidation happening. It's not going to be dramatic. We're not going to down to 2,000 firms or even 8,000 firms, right? They're just, there's continually new players coming in and, and we can talk about meta RAAs or things like that, these dominant firms. But I, I think overall, this industry is going to remain healthy. That said, there's consolidation at the top. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing, you know, big firms get bigger and bigger, and that's because they're absorbing $100 million, $400 million, $4 billion firms, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're 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 selling because they're looking for the benefits of scale. You know, gee, I want to join a larger organization that gives me greater product breadth or takes care of operational or administrative headaches. So scale is probably the number one driver for the last three years. Um, prior to that, succession planning was the number one driver. People were using an external sale of their company to go into retirement to exit the business. 
So that that's foundational for the industry. Those two drivers have been, you know, here for for several years. They'll be here for several years to come. Um, what's really driven um, 2021 in particular um, has been the, the the pending tax changes. You know, we we have a new president. Um, we have a, a House and a Senate that are looking. Um, to push through different tax changes. So a lot of firms saw the writing on the wall in late 2020, even 2021, and, and just really started to accelerate, you know, getting transactions done by the, the end of the year. We had a lot of sellers that said, hey, let's go do this, but please mm -hmm. bend over backwards. We want this deal done before the end of the year, seemingly when the, the tax changes, if they occur, would go into effect. So the tax um, threat has been one driver. Another key driver is a little, a little different, a little interesting. You know, we're, we're, we're now dealing with Omicron. We had Delta, we have COVID, you know, COVID was a psychological event for this industry that's affecting M&A. So what happened, you know, this industry, Jeff, you've been covering this for years. You know that 30, maybe 35% of advisors have a written succession plan in place. Mm -hmm. You know, it was 25% when I started in this industry 18 years ago. It just hasn't moved much. And it's one of those things that's easy to delay. It's easy to, to procrastinate. Well, when you have a uh, an international pandemic and suddenly, you know, it's a life or death situation, advisors realize that this this isn't a theoretical construct of having a succession plan. You know, um, mm -hmm. now we're really talking about things that can occur. Um, and fortunately, I guess a silver lining of COVID is a lot of firms, Jeff, decided, wow, I do need to put a succession plan, a continuity plan in place. A lot of those firms decided external is better for internal for one reason or another. And I think that that's driving a near-term surge in M&A activity as well. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And, and you're right. I mean, succession plans are, are the industry is just behind the curve on those. And, yeah. and a lot of advisors, maybe that was their plan all along uh, to sell. And maybe now they're saying, I'm going to sell because <laughs> who knows what's going to happen next with the next variant. Um, what about any kind of a any kind of trends that you're seeing in this data? I mean, different types of buyers, different types of sellers. Anything stand out there? Yeah, yeah. There's some interesting interesting developments. Uh, I'll start with the sellers. Um, we we've seen a market increase in larger firms selling. So you know, years ago, forty seven percent of the transactions would be over you know say five hundred million or or more. Um, you know, that's expanded nearly 20 points. Um, so we're, we're seeing a lot of um, 500, a uh, billion dollar sellers. That's been an increase much more dramatically has been the billion to 5 billion. That's mm -hmm. really ramped up um, over the last couple of years. Part of that is related to COVID. When COVID hit, um, the larger firms that are professionally managed where, you know, uh, the founder is not spending part of their time taking care of clients. And when COVID hit, they spent all their time taking care of clients. Mm -hmm. These larger firms were professionally managed. They had CEOs and leadership teams that could come into the office, pour coffee for the advisors and route them on to go take care of clients the way REAs do better than any, any type of firm on the planet, any business model. But then they close their office door and they'd work on what their day job is. And part of their day job is, is buying and selling, you know, REA. So mm -hmm. that, that enabled M&A to continue for those larger firms during that process. So the, the seller pool over the last couple of years, all boats are rising, you know, even small firms are selling in greater numbers. 
but there's been a, a market expansion and acceleration for, um, you know, half billion, even more so billion dollar plus firms. So that those are some of the trends on the sell side. And when you mentioned that, just to be clear, when you mentioned the yep. billion, half billion, you're talking about the assets under management at these Spot firms, on. Yep. Not the yep. price. You're absolutely right. Yep. Um, are you seeing any, is there still a market for a smaller firm to be? And I know you only look at firms that are SEC registered and you have to be at least a hundred million yep. to be SEC registered. But are you seeing any, um, Anything at the smaller end? Is there activity there, or do the firms have to be have half a mil, half a billion under management to get uh, the attention of a buyer? Um, well, there's some interesting dynamics there. So, um, one part of that answer is is the smaller firms, and we can even talk in more detail under a uh, hundred billion. No shame in running a firm that has twenty or fifty or seventy million in assets under management. You know, mm-hmm. these are good people serving the the investing public better than anyone in the marketplace. So, um, and, and by the way, those folks are even more affected by this potential risk of COVID. They don't when you're that small, you don't have next generation G2, next gen in place. So you have to mm-hmm. eventually do an external deal. So that's going to happen. But the, the 100 million to 500, um, the number of transactions, the nominal number hasn't slowed down. It's stayed pretty steady, you know, 51 transactions up to 57 on an annual basis over the next, over the last several years. Um, so that's, that's still um, uh, chugging along. I think another trend, just getting out of M&A for a, a moment is, um, you know, this development of consolidation at the top, you know, these mega REAs or even meta yeah. REAs that are, are, are frankly running really good businesses and are growing extremely quickly. I'll even be provocative, Jeff, and I'll say, you know, they're not only growing faster and they're better run. These firms are, are taking care of clients better than others in the industry. They're very provocative, but mm-hmm. I think there's data to back that up. So, but this isn't the death now for, mid or small firms. These small, medium-sized, large firms can continue to serve the investing public well and, and run a profitable business. So it's it's really the good news for, for potential sellers. And we can talk about some of the buyer trends as well, but there's, there's not pressure like you, you better sell and get out of this business because things are changing. I think the small and medium size will still do well in the industry. Okay. And um, what are you seeing in terms of valuations? It would seem if deals are up, the prices are up. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah, yeah. And the chicken and the egg or, or whatever else, I guess it's probably not uh-huh. a chicken and an egg. There's a there's an attractive element that's bringing um, sellers to the marketplace to at least be a little more curious, right? So um, good news, people in the REA industry, these, these owners are not, you know, coin operator or looking for the biggest dollar or whatever else. But you also can't ignore that valuations are at record highs in today's environment. You know, mm-hmm. um, I've been doing this 18 years. We went through 2008, and right at the beginning of that year, valuations were at record highs. Um, you know, the the financial crisis hit, and they went to record lows in the course of a couple of weeks. Um, and it's taken you know 10 plus years to get back to uh, these high valuations. I didn't think that those high valuations from 2008 would ever be eclipsed. We had irresponsible buyers, um, unqualified buyers. I'll I'll be a little crass. They were throwing money around irresponsibly. So I think it was a little bit of a bubble then. I don't think it's a bubble now. So Jeff, today we have, you know, the buyers out there. These are run by sophisticated management teams that have lived and breathed in this industry for years. You know, they get this industry. Um, 
they have great access to capital and, and, you know, private equity, a big trend we can talk about or not, but private equity is not the boogeyman. Um, and at least to date, they haven't demonstrated any, any of those negative tendencies. This is a healthy industry and the private equity here is betting on the white cowboy hats that the REAs are wearing. They're betting that this is the best way for the invest, U.S. investing public to have their money managed. So consequently, when they're doing transactions, it's not like barbarians at the gate where they're gutting the companies and flipping them and getting you know, hyper leveraged and things like that. They're acquiring companies and they're, they're, they want the people to stay. They want to grow these companies faster. So, um, so yeah, as a result of that, um, the valuations have continued to increase because these sophisticated business models, when they do acquisitions, can make those acquired firms grow faster and they can expand the profitability of that firm. And if you can do a deal and make a firm grow faster and have better margins, mm-hmm. you can pay more and it's legitimate. So these, these high valuations have not only you know, stayed stagnant once they eclipsed the high two and a half years ago, they've continued to, to slowly tick up even further. Yeah, you, you mentioned private equity, so we'll go there for a second. Um, yeah. the, you know, I have been covering this industry for a while, and, and I don't recall or I, I know private equity was not in this space in this way in 2008. What, what triggered the appeal of the wealth management space to private equity? Private equity has been around a long time and so has financial advisory firms. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a few thoughts. One is, you know, we probably had some false starts in the industry. You, you know, go back to the NFP days, you know, great organization in so many re- respects. It's evolved in, a, in ways. So I'm not criticizing that organization in particular. But, um, you know, NFP and Asante, if we go back in the archives, you know, these organizations 15, 18 years ago approached it the way I would have in business school if I was doing a business case. Like, hey, it's a hyper-fragmented industry. Let's just roll up a bunch of these firms. We're going to centralize operations. We're going to standardize processes. We're going to slap a national brand on it, you know, and we're really going to, we're going to do this sort of, um, I'll, I'll be a little crass, this crass business case. Mm-hmm. It suddenly sounds a lot like the firm that these founders of REAs wearing white cowboy has left. This this starts to feel like Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley and and sort of just a very you know constrained um, organization. So those business models from back in yesteryear, um, you know, didn't do as well. Apollo was one of the backers of NFP. You know, you can argue how mm-hmm. successful that was. Well, moving forward, we've had some great proofs of concept, right? So private equity firms look for proof of concept. And when you have, you know, a firm like Focus Financial Partners that goes through a number of different rounds of private equity, they they continue to grow and do great things and go public. And, you know, the stock goes up, that gets private equities, you know, um, attention. When you see United Capital that follows a similar um, roadmap in some regards and ends up selling to a, a, a wonderful brand like Goldman Sachs, that's another proof of concept. So, you know, those things can can really um, get more attention of private equity. Um, but ultimately, private equity is looking for sound investments. And I think it's, um, you know, I, I think it's another vote of confidence that that these really smart investors, you know, smart money, as they're alluded, alluded to, are, are um, investing and investing uh, um, heavily in this space because they think it's a really good mousetrap. It's a good model. Okay. Well, we'll see. It, it, uh, I know that uh, private equity, if you talk to them, they say they're long-term investors, but 
that's usually five to seven years and they're all we already are seeing turnover there and i'm not saying that's a bad thing but uh yeah. it is a different thing um and finally uh, david i want to ask you about uh, your outlook for this this pace of deals um yeah. yeah i mean is this pent-up demand we're seeing in 2021 and can it be eclipsed in 2022 and beyond yeah, you know, um, let's see, if, if I take a step back and I just think about this industry, you know, again, hyper-fragmentation um, often leads to consolidation. So I think there's that factor. When you think about the demographics, you know, the average owner, founder of an organization, I'll just say owner, forget founders, owner is probably approaching their mid-60s at this point, which means there's a lot of folks that are in their 70s. Um, uh, you know, the lack of succession planning, all these factors, you know, the, the new emergence of these meta REAs um, that really enable an REA to sell and hook their caboose to a pretty fast moving train. You know, these are elements that are, are likely to drive mergers and acquisitions for years to come. Now, going a little deeper, I'm a nerd, so I've crunched all sorts of numbers or my team has crunched numbers. And when you, when you think about an industry with 10,000 plus firms and you do some math in terms of, you know, those founders and selling and retiring and the timing and all that stuff, I, I, I've determined that there should be about 250 transactions a year for an industry like ours, you know, and that's over hundred million. We've been running well below 250. What that means is each year there was less than 250. There were deals that didn't come onto the market and should have. So to me, that means a, a big amount of supply. Now, someone might say, hey, Dave, your math is wrong or you don't know what you're talking about. But that, that's part of my, my perspective. And that leads me to believe that M&A over the next five or even seven years, you know, we just haven't seen this uh, over the next five or seven years, I think is going to increase and increase pretty steadily. I think we're, we're bumping up against the healthiness of, of M&A. If you have too steep of, a, of an incline in M&A activity, the buyer capacity, the, the ability to integrate effectively, you know, it's a constrained resource. So if you, if you grow too quickly, if we had you know, twice or three times as many deals next year as we had this year, it, we're just going to run out of room. Valuations are going to be compressed. I, I should say if we had two or three times the number of sellers, because I don't think we can get two or three times the number of transactions done a year. So suddenly you have too many sellers not enough buyers to responsibly in include them. And then I think we get into some weird things. Now, moving a little closer to home. So on the, on the high level, next five, seven years, I think we'll see increasing M&A activity. You know, maybe 2022 is a slowdown. I think at least at the arc, you know, this jump of 30% increase, 35% or 40% increase year over year, you know, I, I, I expect that might flatten we don't have these two significant drivers of taxes and sort of the, the COVID um, succession reactions. So you take those off the table, that's, that seemingly would compress the volume. Will we see 200 plus deals? You know, maybe, probably, I, I think December, I, I think we're going to see a spike of activity here over the next, uh, over the next 30 days. Um, so that number is going to go higher, potentially um, quite a bit higher for a December. Um, so I, I'd say if, if we're betting, I think the, 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 the arc will be a little less steep um, and it may not even eclipse um, 2021 um, transactions. We just don't know what that number is. All right, good stuff, good summation. Uh, a complete picture from David DeVoe, <laughs> Chief Executive Officer of DeVoe & Company. Thank you for being a part of our 75th episode.
of the Investment News Podcast. I also want to thank Ed Slot for uh, breaking down the year-end tax planning strategies. And uh, that, folks, is a wrap. Uh, I'm Jeff Benjamin. If you want to reach me on Twitter, I am at Benji Writer. My co-host, who is uh, at home uh, baking lasagna right now, is Bruce Kelly. He is at BD News Guy. Thank you very much.